0: Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine, and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times, and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. To stand out as a leader, you need to be innovative. One of Australia's leading innovators over decades has worked at the forefront of banking and tech. Pit Marlowe is CEO of Salesforce. Prior to Salesforce, she was Chief Executive Officer Customer Marketplace at Sumcorp, which she joined in 2016. Pitt was at Microsoft for 21 years, and she held a number of roles, including six years as Managing Director. Along with being an innovator, she's a passionate advocate for flexible and diverse workplaces that empower people. I thought we'd just start by getting a a bit of a sense about what your current role looks like. Oh, you know, the answer to that would probably change on
1: every given day of the week. But uh, the joyous title is CEO for Salesforce for Australia, New Zealand and the beautiful diverse area of ASEAN. Um, and it's really leading an incredible group of people whose job it is to help Australian, New Zealand, ASEAN companies, you know, connect with their customers. And that's sort of the power of the, the Salesforce platform and
0: product. So I have have that job leading that team across the region. So you've been a leader in this country for a long time and a, and a female leader with a very strong profile, which all those things have risks associated with them being a, a strong female leader. Tell me, how did you get to this point, do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I probably go back to
1: pre-working, actually, to, to my family. I'm, I grew up in a family that was very working class. We didn't have a lot of money. I was one of five children and my parents instilled a real set of values and that was diligence. It was hard work. It was equality. It was competitiveness. Like we had to pay, play a team sport. That was one of the rules, you know, and I played softball, volleyball, netball over my childhood and, and schooling. And, and it's. I think my parents were a real inspiration and and set me up to believe if I worked hard, then almost anything was possible. So I think that would be the number one thing that's influenced me.
0: So that explains your drive. But what about your capability? You're obviously good at a bunch of things.
1: Yeah. So there's always skills that you acquire over the time. I think from a capability um, element, the thing that I think is differentiated or really helped me is taking risks and continuing to learn, like taking jobs that move me into places that push me into discomfort, knowing that, you know, when I moved to Suncorp after being in technology all my life, going into banking and insurance and not letting the fact that you know, I was going to a senior role in a completely different industry um, stop me, but knowing there was enough there to help me be successful, but so much more I could learn. So I think I've constantly taken on roles that have extended the sets of capabilities that I have. I, I wouldn't call myself a specialist. I would call myself a generalist. Um and that has been garnered and and gathered through really a breadth of experiences, geography, segments I've been in, industries I've served, companies I've worked for.
0: You remind me of um Anne Sherry, who is, is Know her well, which which is the same thing, right? She never, she was never limited by her own imagination. She kept trying different things. Were you conscious that you were doing that? Or did you just go, Yeah, that sounds like fun. I'll just have a go at
1: it. It was probably a little bit of both. There was probably a bit of um, opportunity that came in front of me at certain times of my life where I went, well, I'm just going to take that. I'm going to grab that. Moving to the US, when that opportunity presented itself, I went, I have no ties, I can move, let's go jump and do that. And then there's other times when I've been more thoughtful and I've looked ahead and said, if I really want to have jobs like X and Y ahead of me, I probably need to gain some skills, capabilities, experiences that I don't have and what role is going to help me get those. So I've done a bit of both over the time.
0: What about that dirty word, ambition? Did you have it? I mean, actually, you obviously had ambition, (laughs) but did you hide it or did you try to hide it but it was kind of just obvious?
1: I really struggled with it, to be honest. I, I struggled to declare that I would one day want to be the CEO of an organization like this or run an ASX company, I found it very difficult to do that. And when I sort of scratched the surface under why that is, it was because I was struggling to hold two things at the same time. I was struggling to articulate my ambitions and hold on to a value of humility or being a team player. And I felt if I declared my ambitions, then it would push down that value or hold at risk the value of being a team player or being humble. And I had to learn to hold both of those things at the same time. And I had a a story with an old boss of mine, a great guy who one day said to me, do you want to be the managing director of Microsoft one day? And I went to him and I went, oh, I don't know. It's a big job. There's so many other people who are really good at this. They could be better. And he just shook his head. He said, you know what, with an answer like that, you wouldn't get it. And in my head, I was going, well, of course I want that job but I didn't know how to say it without feeling I was being arrogant. And he he really helped me through that. He said, you shouldn't let people die wondering, you know, what your aspirations are because they can help you. And you can do it in a way that still is humble and a team player and, you know, work, work that through. And so I'm much more comfortable now articulating my ambitions. My ambitions are not a guarantee. And it doesn't mean there aren't other people who may get that job ahead of me. And if they're better, then that's fantastic. Hopefully I'll learn from them. But uh, it's, I think it's an incredible art for me that I've had to, you know, build up skills around and, and holding both of those things at the same time.
0: I did exactly the same thing with a newspaper editor who asked me whether I ever wanted to be a newspaper editor. And I said, um, can I think about it? Went back in the next day and said, I said, oh, no, I just want to pick up that um, conversation from yesterday. And he said, I think I've got a pretty good idea where you where you stand. And he immediately offered me a job that put me in a different path. So I learned from that point as well, I think. And the only reason you do it is because you are trying to be, have the humility and the team player. And there's that little bit of doubt about whether you actually can do it as a woman in a major organization. Um, you would... Now see so many women make exactly that mistake. Do you go out in search of it to teach them, or do you just use it as an opportunity when the time presents? Oh no, I,
1: I'm very proactive. I love to go out and engage. Like just yesterday, I did a virtual roundtable with our interns, male and female. But I talk about exactly those types of stories. I talk about um, self-limiting beliefs, which is really what we're talking about in some ways when we talk about our doubt. It's what are the beliefs that we have that limit us and how do we move away from those to getting more excited about the art of the possible, the the potential for you to make a real difference in in the world and the company you work for and the community. And and having that sense of aspiration and belief and having it earlier, um, I think is just an incredible gift. So I really love to go and talk to people who are earlier in their career to have those conversations, we're all, I think, um, not guilty. I think we all just have self-limiting beliefs. The way I think our brain is wired. Uh, One of the things I say to um, people who are in the career stage and still to myself is when you're having that doubt, that doubt creates fear. Fear is a feeling. It is not a fact. It is okay that you feel nervous about it. That's that's okay. Something bad isn't necessarily going to happen. Like I happen to be scared of flying. If I let the fear win, I'll never get on a plane again and achieve my you know, desires to travel the world and explore. Because the feeling won. So recognize you feel the fear or the doubt. That's okay. But then move forward. Don't let it stop you. And I think as long as you're not, you know, ignoring your feelings because they're telling you things as well. But you're not letting them inhibit you or stop you from you know, taking a step, trying something, making a risk. You know, it may not be successful. That's okay. But don't let fear stop you taking that next step. So, going back to ambition,
0: what point did you realize that it was okay to own your ambition? And, and how did that manifest itself?
1: Yeah, look, it was probably in, in my 30s with a conversation I told you with um, Steve Amos, who was running Microsoft at the time, and he's uh, the CEO for Zero right now. He's still somebody I you know, really respect and get advice from. So, it was that that was such a defining moment for me when he called me on that. That would have been the point that I just said, yeah, I need to do this differently. And and before that, I never really had a career plan, not a deliberate one. I just thought, you know, I would continue to learn and grow. But it's at that point I said, right, what are the things that I want to do in the next period of time? What are the types of roles that I aspire to, the type of impact I want to be able to make? And am I aiming for those? And I didn't want to make it just one thing. I, I took a broader approach. And then what were the roles that could start help getting me into that place?
0: Yes. And I think one of the most delightful things that can happen is when a woman walks into your office and says, I want that next job. A, it makes it really easy as her manager to clear the path, but it also means the clarity uh, for you and the business and for her, everyone is better served. How often do you see that though? Oh, more and more. I have to say I'm really
1: inspired by the generation you know today in their 20s. The amount of these incredible young women in my organisation who send me a Slack message or you know WhatsApp me saying, can I get some time with you to talk about my career? Like, in my 20s, I don't think I would have done that with the CEO. There is like, And I'm like, yeah, if you have taken, if you've got the courage to reach out to me to do that, then you're going to get some of my time. Not a problem. So I love that. And I'm, you know, constantly... um seeing and, and getting those messages way more now than ever before. Um now, I don't necessarily see it sometimes as much maybe women in their 40s and 50s maybe less, but the the this generation in their you know 20s and 30s I'm like you girls have got this. I'm so like I have such great hope as I spend more and more time with that generation. I think they're incredible.
0: I hired a young girl that was doing an internship on a different magazine on a different floor that walked up the flight of stairs onto the floor and into my office, um, and I was editor-in-chief of Women's Weekly at the time, which you know used to have Ida Buttrose mm. and a whole bunch of famous people, and um, asked me for a job. So I hired her on the spot. I mean, she was clearly a go-getter.
1: Yeah, what I mean, she got to lose? Yeah? And no. Yeah, she got her steps up. You know, that's for you. You're
0: listening yeah. steps up and then you got a job. And you a go. great anecdote <laughs> of how awful I was uh, <laughs> to tell for the rest of her life. But no, I hired her. Um, let's talk about innovation. You've you've worked at the forefront of some organizations that have been the forefront of innovation. What has that looked like in terms of the way that you and they have approached I guess the development of their workforce.
1: So it's so interesting. The word innovation is so often associated with product. Yes, how what's the next you know version of this car or you know this laptop? But innovation is so much broader than that. It's a way of thinking. It's business process innovation. Uh, there's so many different ways innovation can occur. And I think uh, the thing I really love at Orem right now, actually, um, at Salesforce, is innovation is one of our, our four core values. So to actually work for a company where they put that down as um, a value is like, I love it because it means that in every part of our business, we're taking a, a challenger mindset to say, how do we make it better? How do we make it better for our customers, our people, our community? And it, and it, it's embedded across the business, you sense it, you feel it. So it might be um, in the form of um, equality. Uh, how do we continue to innovate about how do we do better around equality? So... Just recently, um, we released a new transgender policy where um, if you were going through a transition, we would give you four weeks medical leave. We would give you over $40,000 towards your surgery. We would give you $1,000 towards the legal fees to change your name and everything else you're doing. And we would even give you $500 towards a wardrobe change um, as you went through that transition. Now, I know $500 isn't a lot, but it's actually more symbolic around the change that you're going through and how we want to support you. An innovative policy like that would not have existed however many years ago when, when that conversation may not have even surfaced. Um, and it might have, you know, somebody might not feel comfortable even sharing where they are. We have a fantastic uh, team member, Manu in New Zealand, who's already taken advantage of the policy. And it's one of the first for us in ANZ. And it's, it's great to innovate in policies that allow your people to contribute and participate and and feel welcome and included.
0: Now, there are many businesses that are still struggling with the concept of equality for women, uh, let alone to be looking at those sorts of policies. You are obviously at the at the forefront of you know really dramatic change in terms of the way you see people and culture. In terms of the sorts of leadership techniques, styles, what have you seen in your career, that has changed, if anything, for that better.
1: Well, I think specific to gender equality, the number one driver of change is actually having a leader at the top who genuinely believes in it and that genuine belief in care drives proactive action. So and if you think about things like sexual harassment in the workplace, the more egregious examples are less and less common, Okay. But the microaggressions and the systemic barriers in processes, they're the ones that are still there. And so the leaders who genuinely care about creating a space for equality in all its forms, and in this case, gender equality flourish, take time to understand where are the little things that are still going wrong and how do they use their power for system change. So a system change would be, you know, still in this country, you uh, females earn, what, 18% less than men. So we know we have a gender pay gap. So just doing a report in your organization to see if you have a pay gap is not action. It's analysis. It's great. But actually spending the money to close the gap is action and ensuring that men and women are having equal pay for equal work. So Um, I I love that. It's one of the things that attracted me to Salesforce. Mark, our CEOs, I think so far, spent $15, $16 million closing the pay gap. And we look at it twice a year to make sure if anything's moved and shifted, we fix it. So it's that action aligned to the value that makes the difference. It's the organizations who look and say, well, you know, the reality is, and last time I looked, only females can have babies. So if I'm taking a time out to have a baby... If I go on super, I go out and leave, I stop earning super. The organizations that are playing super annuation when you're on parental leave, um, they're taking real systems change to ensure that that gap that we see in retirement super, which is way less for women than it is for men, you know, we're not disadvantaging women when they're out there. So they're not waiting for regulation to make that happen. You know, they're, they're business leaders really driving system change and putting their time, energy and money behind it to make it right.
0: What sort of leader do you think you are?
1: I'm a work in progress, Helen. I um, I think I'm what I would call a participative leader. I like to not work to consensus, but I love to work with diversity of thought. So I really try and create an environment where people feel um, it's psychologically safe to participate. And to participate means to be able to disagree with me. So I believe in healthy debate. We're debating the issue, not the person. Um, but if you can't bring a controversial, you know, provocative point of view because you're worried about what I'm going to say or how I'm going to react, I'm going to miss out on something good and that's not good for the business and it's not good for me. So I would say I'm a very participative leader. I would say I'm an aim high. I, I, I am ambitious for the business. I, I'm going to lie. I want to win. I want us to grow. want us to grow faster than the competition. I want us to be the best person, the best company for our customers. For sure, I want to be number one. It's not always gonna happen. And resilience, therefore, you know, I think is key um, in leadership. So I would say I'm competitive, ambitious. I would say I'm resilient, but I also would say I'm fun. Uh, you know, I work hard. I want to have a good time. I wanna enjoy the people I'm working with. I wanna be able to, you know, take our business seriously, but not always ourselves too seriously.
0: So you've got that staff member who always challenges you. Mm-hmm. Nothing's never right. You know, they've always got a second, you know, an idea about why it won't work. What do you do? Do you kind of like have to calm yourself down and go, oh my God, Gary, can you just get on board this one? <laughs> or do you always go, Gary, tell me more why you think this won't work? Well, I think there's a role for a black hat
1: on the team. Yeah, There's a role for somebody who sees things in a way that you don't. The balance is not having one particular perspective overshadow the potential um, or stop things moving forward because you just want more and more information. It's about how much do I need from everybody right now? So I do, I like to have a black hat at the at the table and, and people who can play that role. I do think, though, it is about getting a balance around the table. And I think earlier in my career, be it a black hat or even if it was somebody who was questioning me, sometimes I'd get a bit triggered and I would probably shut them down or push back and then I stopped getting some of those points of view and there's a, there's a saying for it, it's called like an amygdala hijack. It's this little grain of rice-sized part of your brain called the amygdala when if somebody's threatening you, not just physically but maybe your authority or your position, it can kick in and it really stops you thinking as rationally as you should and lets you maybe, you know, drives fight, flight or, you know, freeze sort of thing and sometimes, know i would get that trigger from that person and it would not bring out the best in me it would bring out the fight and that doesn't create psych safety that does the opposite so one of the things i've worked on you know my career is to feel myself get triggered like that recognize that feeling and i can feel it i can feel my heart rate increasing i can feel my stomach tightening Uh, my breath shortens a little and i recognize those triggers and in my best you know my best self i breathe through it i ask questions and I go, wow, I did that really well. And my worst self, it's like, <laughs> I do not. And, you know, I wish I could say I've mastered it completely. I have not. But I recognize when I haven't done it very well and I like I apologize afterwards. I say, that's not how I want to show up. It's not the sort of person I want to be. And I'm sorry, you know, for how I showed up and the impact it's had. So I'm not going to be perfect. Um, gave up on perfection
0: a while ago. <laughs> but that is interesting because I've always had a theory that that particular reaction also has value in big organizations whereas a really competitive environment, because if you are sitting there as the wallflower, there goes, oh, sorry, you know, that's really lovely what you think, you're not going to end up as the CEO. You have to have that extra bit that goes, I'm going to take that fight on and I'm going to win it. It's a balance. I mean, you're now in the position where you can be rise above it and encourage it. But in your middle of your career, it would have been a quality that got you to where you yeah, are. Yeah.
1: So I think some of the qualities that helped, I did have conviction and I still have conviction. I, I can have you know, real conviction around things. I can articulate an argument. The difference for me is the how. You can debate people. You can debate people with respect. I don't need to make somebody else feel like less or an idiot or yeah. it's just not necessarily to humiliate people in the process of having a debate or a discussion. Because that, I truly believe, impacts the psychological safety of an organisation. I've worked in places at times where psych safety wasn't there because people leveraged that reaction to create such a um, strong, and when I say violent, I don't mean physically violent, but a, a verbally aggressive, unhealthy environment that would shut the room down. And I, I would see it happening and then there was really important information that need to be surfaced that didn't happen. And because those things weren't raised, the business got hurt. And that's like, that's, that's the worst thing we can do for our, for our company, for our customers. Um, and so, yes, it's about harnessing that energy, harnessing that passion 100%. But I think the how really matters.
0: one of the things that you find when you enter a new organisation is that there's always an attitude of that's not the way we do things around here. How have you tackled that um, in your leadership roles?
1: Well, there's probably two things I do. First, I um, told them the story of Blockbuster because Blockbuster didn't stream videos and really doesn't exist. And it's that lack of challenging the way things have done means that we all use Netflix now. And so it's really important to bring in a challenger mindset. So I give an example of what could go wrong if we don't challenge. But I think the other thing to think about, and I learned this lesson actually um, when I moved um, to Suncorp, you know, I came in to take a role around innovation. I think in order to help an organization change and ask them to do something different, it's important to take a moment to honor the past before you create the future. Understanding why things are the way they are, because the people in the company are doing something they think is good or right or the best way. They're not, you know, coming in today and going, oh, you know, I'm not going to change. They're coming in thinking they're doing something good. So understanding why those thoughts and beliefs exist, why the history has got us to this place is an important respectful moment in driving change and creating the future. And then the people you're going to ask to change know that you've taken enough time to understand why things are the way they are and use that to help inform moving forward. So I try and show those two things. We need to innovate. We need to change or else we will become obsolete. And that's hard, especially when you're in a market share of number one, uh, the incumbents dilemma, isn't it? And the other is then respecting
0: the past before I create the future. Can we also talk about risk profiles? Because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of incentive for organisations to have very little risk appetite. But you've obviously worked in organisations where risk has been carefully calibrated. How do you... Manage that with your executive team and get them to take risks. And it's funny, for most of my career, my risk appetite
1: is how much can I push things without breaking things? Yeah, like how fast can I go without doing like really bad damage? Working in financial services teaches you a lot about risk, actually. Um, it teaches you actually to have a conscious risk appetite. I never really had a conscious risk appetite until I worked in financial services that taught me about. How much am I prepared to fail in order to make something happen? What controls can I put into place when I'm taking a risk to help me within that appetite or to stop something go wrong? So working actually in in banking insurance really matured my thinking candidly around risk. Then it's to bring it back to if you're going to take risk and create an environment for your organization to take risk, you have to reward it. You have to let people go to the boundaries that you set you know, that freedom within a framework. So give them the framework. How much you're prepared to let them lose on a project or um, how many times something can fail before you stop it. Give them some of that and and accept that on that path to learning or innovating, failure will be part of that. Um, I always like to say my guys fail fast, frequently, and frugally. (laughs) Um, And if you figure it out you've failed, stop it quickly. Don't let it cost us too much money. Um, And do it frequently because if you don't fail very often, then it hurts a lot. And you're like, oh, that didn't feel good. So actually, small failures build resilience. It's like, you know, when you're working out, a little muscle tear builds back stronger. So I think allowing people to fail within a framework is a really healthy um, attribute of an organisation that embraces innovation.
0: As an innovator in everything, where do you think leadership qualities are headed? What sort of skills do you think... Our audience should be thinking about developing today.
1: So I think that I think that's a great question, saying you know, the future of leadership. And, and if you go back in time, a lot of leadership was command and control, wasn't it? It's like here's the you know the voice from the the bridge. We tell everybody in the organisation what to do. Everybody's going to stand up, move to ten steps to the right, and, and face that. I actually think that leadership will have a certain place, but I think it will it is evolving. So I think it's about leadership from the edge. So leaders at the top of the organisation being able to understand and and pull information from closest to the customer. And that means the leader at the top really needs to be able to connect not just with their senior managers, but with the people at the front line of their businesses who are talking to customers, understanding what their competitor is doing. So I think leaders who are more porous in their organisation will be more effective. Um, Leaders who are much stronger at dealing with ambiguity. I think over the last two years, if it's shown us anything, we cannot predict what's going to happen in the next, you know, month, quarter, year. So a leader's ability to deal and lead with more ambiguity than ever before I think is going to be increased. And, you know, yes, we've had COVID, you know, we've had global financial crises. It just seems to be these things are coming closer together and so that ability to deal with that ambiguity is going to be really important. Um, Leaders who create more clarity for their organisation. Clarity isn't paint by numbers and saying you must do this, but clarity around the purpose, the why we're all doing what we're doing that drives discretionary effort and gets people behind the purpose, that's going to light up organizations and, and effectiveness, I think, far more. And a purpose for me isn't, we're going to grow to be $10 billion. Most people I know don't get out of bed to help the company they work for, you know, grow to an next billion dollars. They get out of bed to have their company help them work in the education sector to help get personalized learning and better you know, student outcomes, or work in healthcare because you're working with clinicians to help get better clinical outcomes, or you're helping small businesses grow their business. So the people who get their organization inspired around the purpose and the why, those things are important. So being porous, dealing with ambiguity, um, and having that sense of really getting people inspired around the why, people want to go and, and work for organizations like that and.
0: And leaders who run them. I think that's a brilliant answer. What do you want to see less of in terms of leadership styles?
1: Less of, it's um, definitely for me, it'd be maybe a little bit less on the, um, the, the lack of vulnerability. I think still sometimes leaders feel like they have to know the answers or they have to be the person to tell everybody else what to do, or they're not comfortable saying, hey, I'm just not sure about this. Let's get some other people in here. I want to see I don't want to, I want to see less of that lack of vulnerability and more people opening up and going, never faced into this. So let's figure it out. That that line people say, you know, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. If they knew the solution, they probably would. And so if you didn't have the solution, do you not bring the problem? That just seems wrong to me. So how about, you know, yes, if you've got, bring me your problems, that's okay. Because I think bad news should travel faster than good news, candidly. And if you have some ideas on the solution, fine. But if not, Let's figure out who can help us at that
0: point. So, um, yeah, more vulnerability in there. In terms of uh, your first answer about the future, what sort of leaders or who do you admire at the moment? Is there anyone you think there's actually doing a great job of combining at least some of the the thoughts that you just had about the future of leadership?
1: Yeah, and I'm, you're going to think I'm I'm biased, but I, I would say Mark Benioff. Um, and yes, he's my boss. So that's going to sound like it's going to be a, <laughs> like she has no choice. Well, he's Trust me, I have car. a choice. <laughs> but um, the thing about Mark is he really believes in stakeholder capitalism. And, and it's all around. It's not just around profit and there's multiple stakeholders you should think about when you're running a business. And for him, and I align to it, it's our communities, it's our customers, it's our employees, it's our planet, um, and it's our shareholders. And I love um, what he is doing on that. And and it's not just talk. You know, we do the 1% pledge. So we give 1% of our, you know, our time, um, our equity and our product away every year. So when you're a small company, that's not a lot. When you're a $20 billion organization, that's quite a lot. <laughs> so I really admire the work Mark does. And you see he's very active around sustainability. I have a great deal of admiration for him. I uh, have a great deal of admiration for Satya at, at Microsoft. I think he's a very purpose-driven leader and he has sort of reinvigorated that organization and with a real strong sense of values um, as as part of that. Um, those two really um, stand out to me on the, on the global stage. But I think you can lead in, in lots of different ways. I always love seeing, you know, this last year, some of the work and, and the standout people in Australia like Grace Tame. Yes. You know her voice, you know Brittany Higgins is they took a real leadership stand in this country, and I think their fingerprints will be felt um for a long time to come. And you know I so say thank you to both of them for standing up and and sharing their stories and making a difference.
0: A day barely goes past where I don't recognize the work of Brittany Higgins in changing our thinking at every level. And in terms of Grace Tame, the most extraordinary 26-year-old communicator I have ever seen. Exceptional. This audience is mostly female future leaders. What advice do you have to them about the sorts of issues and their approaches to their leadership skills? Assuming that many of them may only lead small teams, may never lead, well, may never lead for long, may may have small roles in our society in this um in their careers. Is there anything that you can impart?
1: Yeah, maybe yeah, a couple of things. First of all, I think everybody leads. It's not a title, it's not a job position. In any role you're in, as a as a parent, as a volunteer, uh somebody you'll have the opportunity to lead. And so. Um, always say, what 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 is the thing that you need to lead in right now? What is the impact that you want to have right now? And how do you, how do you lead through that? And um, start with that, not 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 with your title or anything else. So that'd be number one. Number two is mindset matters. And I say, whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. So if you start off with a mindset saying you can't do that, yeah, it's going to be very difficult to do it. But if you have a mindset, if you can, that's the first step. So Your mindset really matters. A book I love around mindsets is actually called Mindsets. It's by Carol Dwork. She's a psychologist. It's been one of my favorite books to read around that, and I highly, highly recommend it. Um, And then the last thing is um, authenticity. We talked about the styles of leadership historically, which maybe have been more masculine in style. Don't feel like you have to be um, masculine in traits or, or different or who you're not. Um, I always say to people, for me, um, when I get asked what's what's the misconception of me, is I say, don't don't um, confuse my kindness for weakness. I'm a kind person, I'm a fun person, but I'm not a weak person. But I still want to hold that kindness and that fun there. They're they're part of me. But um, you know that's that's being authentic. But it doesn't mean that I'm that I'm weak. So you know, hold on to the things that make you who you are. It doesn't mean that you don't have other characteristics as well to
0: tap into. If we cast forward five years, uh, ten years, where is Pit Marlowe?
1: <sighs> can I say on a beach with a cocktail? You it's can. Like, I don't know. But I think the next phase of my life after corporate is going to be a mixture of some boards and some community work. Um, and occasionally, occasionally I think about politics. and I occasionally think about that because it's easy to sit here and criticise, isn't it? Um, but maybe you should just get in there and do it being a public, um, you know, people are really admire in public service and it is a service to the public and yeah, so in, in maybe a five percent chance I'll jump into something like that.
0: We're going to take that offline because I would love to see you run <laughs> for politics. I'm a, um, a big advocate for more women in political roles. I really don't care what party you run for, but I do care that we get more women into senior roles. So,
1: And given it's Think Big, obviously it
0: would be the Prime Minister. You know, this, well, that's or, right, you know, There's no, no point.
1: You go aim high, didn't we say?
0: <laughs> you might as well. Yeah, well, and look, we're definitely in the market for a, a future female Prime Minister. It's still tough to get there. Oh, totally it is. Yeah. I have so much respect for
1: Julia Gillard, you know, how she's shown up, especially in these last few years. She's a class act. and
0: um, Yes, yeah, so I think she's a role model for an ex um, prime minister. And we're always looking for who might be the next female uh, political leader in this country. So I'm going to hold you to that, um, <laughs> Pitt Marlowe. It's just been delightful. Congratulations on your career to this point. It um, is absolutely inspiring. And uh, thank you for talking to us about ambition and innovation and mindset. It's been a privilege to talk to you. Thank, thank you
1: so much for having me. I hope you all enjoy the podcast.
0: The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson.